How much attention do you pay to your resident city hall? It's probably one of the stalwart edifices of your hometown, one of the first institutions established there. And yet, if you don't have pressing business at city hall, say filing paperwork to open a startup or attending a city council meeting to voice a grievance, you may never have a proper occasion to set foot inside it. That was the case with me until last week. Though it's been in its current location at 100 Holiday Street for nearly two centuries, I walked into it for the first time last Tuesday. It's unexpectedly beautiful. You step in, and after security guards inspect your bags, you walk through a metal detector. A few more paces will lead you right into the rotunda, an open, circular space with a black and gold city seal fashioned into the floor, lovely stained glass in the dome ceiling high overhead, and scores of offices where some bills are hotly contested while others are voted into enduring law, where centuries of mayors and city council members have decided what businesses would be opened, what roads would be closed or restored, what districts would be declared artistic or historic, and what actions would be considered legal or illegal. It's a place where every employee you pass seems proud to be there, a place that is very clearly proud of the generations of notable names the city has produced. City Hall isn't just the seat of local government. It's a wealth at the end of a rainbow, a three-dimensional map to the treasure that is Baltimore's political history. And that gold and black city seal in the center of the rotunda floor? It practically beams up at you as if to say, X marks the spot. For WEAA 88.9 FM, I'm Stacia Brown, and this is Baltimore, The Rise of Charm City, Episode 5, Living on a Mare. I want to welcome you to Baltimore City Hall, first of all. And um, I like to start here because this is really uh, the hub or the center of City Hall. This is Jeannie Davis, City Hall Curator. She's worked here for over 34 years over the course of six mayoral administrations, and she's responsible for leading most of the tours of the building. City Hall is really the center of Baltimore city government. So uh, as such, you have your most important players in city government right here in this building. So of course the most important, most powerful person in city government is our mayor. You have several elected officials here, actually more than several, including our councilmen and women. The city hall is a very territorial place. So really, probably if you added up the, the square footage, you would probably find that the mayor has the most floor space. I'm pretty sure you've already heard. It has been national news after all. But Baltimore is in the throes of a critical, historic mayoral primary. I live in Baltimore County, which has its own separate governing body, so I don't vote in this election. And I don't plan to report much about it over the next few minutes either. Instead, I thought it would be much more useful for me to explore some past mayoral administrations and how the decisions they've made have led the city to this precipice, this latest in an innumerable series of Baltimore's defining moments. Now that that's out of the way, let's turn our attention back to the tour. This is the Board of Estimates room. And it is so called because every Wednesday morning, the Board of Estimates meets here. They sit right here, and they make decisions on the spending of the city's money. Surely you've heard someone inquire, perhaps indignantly, about where all their tax dollars are going. Perhaps you've been the inquirer. Well, this is the spot. Those choices are made right here, but that's only the half of it. 
Baltimore has what's called a strong mayor form of government. This is one of the the places where that really plays out. In terms of who sits on the board of estimates, it is our three top elected officials. That would be the mayor, city council president, and then our controller. So they all sit on the board of estimates. The other two members are the head of the law department and the head of public works, which is the largest city department employing a lot of men and women. The important thing to know here is that those last two members, the head of the law department, the head of public works, they are appointed in their jobs by the mayor. So they they owe their jobs to the mayor. So when it comes time to vote on the board of estimates, of course, you know, the mayor is going to have their support. This is one of the ways that the mayor's strength really plays out, the strength that she is given according to our city charter. If, if you look at the way other uh, city governments are structured around the country, many mayors don't have the amount of power that our mayor has. In fact, Baltimore City Council needs an overwhelming number of votes, 12 of a possible 15, to pass a bill that the mayor has vetoed. Only two other jurisdictions in the country require a three-fourths legislative vote to override an executive veto, Nashville, Tennessee, and El Paso, Texas. In Baltimore, becoming mayor is huge. There's potential to affect remarkable change in a very short time, and perhaps more than would be the case for mayors in other cities. It's easy for a Baltimore mayor to find himself drunk with power. Standing in the Board of Estimates room really drives that point home. It's fitting, then, that this is the room where portraits of select mayors are displayed. Mayoral portraits are emblematic both of the office holder's high self-opinion and of his or her considerable power. They're painted by artists of the mayor's choosing after they leave office, and they depict the mayor in whatever way that he or she would like. The paintings can also act as a kind of historical shorthand. For instance, we learn that Sheila Dixon, Baltimore's first woman mayor and current mayoral candidate, did not have a portrait commissioned. Its absence is a reminder of her resignation. Portraits on the walls, as I said, are all of past mayors. The first mayor is right there. That's James Calhoun. He became mayor in um, 1797. And um, that's when the city of Baltimore officially and legally became the city of Baltimore. I believe it joined As old a city as Baltimore is, its current incarnation is still young, still impressionable. It's important, then, to look at that fairly recent past and examine just how the mayors who changed the face of the city and their office managed to accomplish so much in such a short time. Up next, you'll hear from a few former mayors and the people who've known them. You've been listening to Baltimore, the rise of Charm City, on your source for cool jazz and more, WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community. All right, what do you want to ask me? Well, I, I, I got to ask you, you've done about everything. You've been councilman, right? Yeah. Mayor, yeah. governor, and you're controller now. Yeah. You forgot president of the council. Please, president of don't forget yeah. president of the council. The council, president of the council, mayor, uh, governor, yeah. and controller. Out of all of it, what did you like best? There is no question the job that I like was mayor, and the reason for it 
everybody, you knew everybody. Everybody in here knew me when I was mayor. Now nobody knows me, nobody speaks to me, nobody says hello. Oh, no. No, it's not a fun oh. thing, but I'm doing the best I can. <laughs> but mayor was a great job. And we were there when the Renaissance started, you know, when they did the Charles Center. I was in the city council. And then I uh, became mayor and we did the Inner Harbor. But it's so much fun and it's interesting to watch the various parts of the city. Some deteriorate, some move up. Like Canton, when I was a young boy, we never came down this far. We never left West Baltimore. But I remember Canton was not a was not a wealthy area. Now you can't buy a house down there. Fells Point, you can't buy a house down there. That was William Donald Schaefer in an interview with a local cable access show called Top of the Morning. Notice how he mentions being a kid in West Baltimore? Former mayor, eventual governor, and comptroller Schaefer was born, raised, and educated in the city, and serving it would be his lifelong passion. I was a kid when Schaefer was mayor. He'd been in office for eight years by the time I was born, and he'd remain there for another seven before becoming governor. What I remember most about him was his voice and his smile. He was affable and irascible, and once he wore a red and white striped two-piece bathing suit and a barbershop quartet-style straw hat into a water tank where he posed next to a model dressed as a mermaid to commemorate the opening of the National Aquarium. I always assumed Governor Schaefer was jolly and fun-loving, that he was so successful in mayoral office, he served nearly four terms due to his good nature alone. But talking to one of his closest friends and colleagues broadened my perception. So he put on that outfit and he's like just so upset that he was doing this and what was going to be so stupid. That's the way he was able to to get ready for it. You know, and look at this stupid thing I'm wearing and oh my God, and, and he was driving me out of my mind. I was a wreck and he was a wreck. It was one of these things where he had the gut instinct that it was going to work, but not sure. When you're not sure and you, you know, and you're dressing up in an outfit like that. End of story. You know how successful that was. To this day, I still get people who write to me for posters of for that poster of him in the rubber ducky and in the bathing suit. That's Lainey Lebo Sachs, current executive vice president of external relations at Kennedy Krieger Institute and former aide and confidant to Mayor Schaefer. Her behind-the-scenes account of the bathing suit incident changes my whole memory of it. It wasn't just a fun jaunt by a hometown hero. It was calculated the result of an instinct and commitment that would mark Mayor Schaefer's whole public life. So when the Inner Harbor opened, everybody had worked so hard on the opening and it was such a big deal and it put Baltimore on the map and it was a hot day, July 2nd. We all were, you know, were there with all the festivities and stuff and then we came back to City Hall like 5.30, 6 o'clock, whatever, and everybody was exhausted, you know, because the heat and the excitement and whatever. And of course... The mayor went right into his workroom, started working. And this is, I was fairly new on the job and didn't know him that well, or I would never have said this because it would have been ridiculous to say. I said to him, you must have been so proud of what just happened today. You put Baltimore on the map and Time Magazine was here and Newsweek and everybody. And he turned around, he took off his glasses with his big blue eyes and he looked up at me and he said, little girl, that already happened. What the hell else is going on in this city? It gives me goosebumps when I say it. That just tells you um, how driven he was. Mayor Schaefer's drive earned him national notice. In 1984, Esquire magazine crowned him America's best mayor, a distinction that was owing in part to his direct interactions with his constituency. Then he, you know, then he would get lots of letters from people, letters saying, my this isn't right, my alley isn't clean, my this isn't right, my whatever. And so before we knew it, he'd be in the car going to visit people. 
and he'd be ringing the bell and people would open the door and it'd be like Mayor Schaefer standing there. So what is it about your alley that you don't like? Show me. There were times when he got really nasty letters and he would go visit the people who were saying nasty things about him and he wasn't hard to hold back on saying nasty things back. <laughs> so, but um, all in good spirit, you know, always, always in good spirit. When Mayor Schaefer left City Hall to become governor in 1987, then City Council President Clarence Dew Burns took over for him. This is a happy day for me. Just remember, this has never been done before, and it happened to me. I'm going to be happy for Schaefer, and I'm going to be happier for myself. Because remember, I'm the only one black that's been able to do this. It cannot be anymore first. 68-year-old Clarence Henry DuBurns started his day at City Hall as council president, but he would end it here later as Baltimore's 45th mayor, the first black man to hold that position. First, he toured the executive suite, where he will run... DuBurns, who had served on city council since 1971, had the shortest-lived mayoral term in recent history. He only served about 10 months, but he relished every one of them. In this WBAL news report on his first day in office, he seems fully committed to the moment and fully aware that it could be fleeting. I'm going to walk around, I'm going to get my day in the sun, I'm going to shake hands, I'm going to get pats on the back and all that because tomorrow it starts dwindling, it starts getting away from me. But today, I'm going to take every bow I can get. DuBurns did run for mayor in 1987 and again in 1991 he would lose to the other Baltimore native son who'd go on to serve three terms. My name is Kurt Schmoke. I am the president of the University of Baltimore and the former mayor of Baltimore. We interviewed former Mayor Schmoke in the conference room adjoining his office at the University of Baltimore. I entered politics psychologically at eight years old. Uh, <laughs> Who's I, responsible for your early interest in politics? Um... You know, I'm not sure why I got interested that early. I do know that I happened to meet the former mayor of Baltimore, a man named Theodore McKeldin. actually met him on a street corner with my mother uh, in downtown Baltimore, and we shook hands, and I just remember uh, being impressed with him that he would take the time to say hello to me. I call, call myself a recovering politician. I work on it every day. And, uh, Mayor Schmoke held office from the time I was eight until I was 20. That's a long time to be able to witness black city leadership, and it happened at a time when that was still relatively rare nationwide. Both he and Mayor Schaefer grappled with the aftermath of the industrial collapse in the city, but its effects had deepened by the time Schmoke began to govern, even with Mayor Schaefer's best laid plans for urban renewal. The biggest thing that's happened to uh the Balt to Baltimore has been the impact of the uh, change in the global economy. When I graduated high school, and I hate to say the year, but uh, I graduated high school in 1967. I became mayor in 1987, and the biggest change was the fact that uh, the largest private employer when I graduated high school was a steel company, the Bethlehem Steel Corporation. By the time I became mayor, 20 years later, the largest private employer was Johns Hopkins University and Health System. So that had a huge impact on Baltimore because in 1967, a person could 
leave high school or actually drop out of high school and still live a very almost a middle class uh, life by going down to one of the steel plants, Bethlehem Steel or Eastern Stainless. But that same person in 1987, if they dropped out of school, was almost doomed to a life of uh, subsistence wages or um, uh, support by the state welfare. So that that was that's been the major change, the uh, mix in the um, employment picture in our city. Mayor Schmoke was also the first of his office to inherit a city already ravaged by an influx of illegal street drugs like crack and heroin. In 1988, he proposed what was then considered a fairly radical solution. Prior to becoming mayor of Baltimore, I was the uh, state's attorney. And before that, I had been an assistant U.S. attorney. So eight years as a federal prosecutor. Had a lot of experience dealing with the uh, problem of drugs in our community. And what I concluded through all my work was that uh, the war on drugs as we were conducting it in the United States was misguided and that it should be more of a public health war rather than a criminal justice war and, and that we should be treating addicts more like patients to be treated rather than criminals to be incarcerated. Sound familiar? perhaps because current U.S. Surgeon General Vivek Murthy is proposing a similar federal tech. Just this month, he announced a major $94 million grant to fight opioid addiction medically. Baltimore City will receive about $1.8 million in funding. It only took 28 years after Mayor Schmoke first proposed it. Well, and back in 1988 when I proposed that, uh, most people thought that we could arrest and prosecute our way out of the problem. The other uh, challenge at that time is that most of the country viewed drug problem as an inner city uh, problem and a problem of people of color. And uh, now in 2016, uh, people are seeing that uh, the drug problem is a cancer on the whole uh, country. And um, more and more politicians are talking about it as a health problem uh, and and no longer viewing it as just a problem of so-called those people. As it relates to the upcoming election, I asked Mayor Schmoke what it would take to get more people to show up to the polls. This year... I think voter turnout's going to be high because of a a change that I'm not sure people thought about. This is the first time in over 100 years that the city mayor's election is the same year as the presidential election. Now, with a very competitive Democratic primary, if Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton continue to have a, a close race, that'll bring out people. Then you have the Senate race with Chris Van Hollen and Donna Edwards. That will bring out people. Up next, we'll take a quick look at present-day Baltimore, where everyone's looking for new ways to get out the vote. Good evening, candidates. Thank you for being here. We welcome you to our house here at Morgan State University. Tonight we have nine candidates from a very crowded field vying for the position of mayor of this great city. One of the biggest and most important issues facing our city is voter registration and getting out the vote. 
Last week, Morgan State University, where WEAA is housed, held a mayoral debate in its historic Carl J. Murphy Fine Arts Auditorium. Our team was in the lobby. We collected stories about voting and about constituent concerns, but we didn't ask anyone who they were voting for. My name is Aisha Gillis. Growing up, I would all, my parents would always vote, and so, you know, it was our day off of school, and so I would get excited to go into the voting booth. And back in the 80s, we had the level pull, and so I was always excited at, to click, you know, my votes and pull that lever. Of course, by the time I turned 18, they changed all of the, <laughs> all of the voting ways, but I still continued to vote, so. My name is Aselica Smith. Most invested in, there are several things that I'm very concerned about. <laughs> um, but, you know, a couple of things that are top on, on my list are, are education. I used to work in a high school, so um, I, I've seen firsthand what we're doing with our students, and it breaks my heart. Um, and secondly, our, you know, just sort of overall economic status and where we're investing our money, where we're putting our time, um, you know, how are we, what are we doing to really heal our city um, as a whole and not just in places like Inner Harbor and Port Covington and all that kind of thing. So. We got a tweet from at Gasship, uh, G-A-S-H-I-P-P, this is on economic development or economic um, uplift. Uh, why should the city give $535 million to Under Armour for Port Covington development? Port Covington. I should fill you in here. Port Covington is in South Baltimore near the Inner Harbor. It used to be a railroad terminal. It opened in 1904 but was abandoned by 1988. Now Under Armour CEO Kevin Plank is leading the charge to completely overhaul the area adding new light rail stations and scores of businesses that would help Under Armour rebuild the community. When we talked to former Mayor Schmoke, he was in favor of Port Covington development, citing it as one of the future mayor's key concerns. In 2016, given what we've gone through with the death of Freddie Gray and um, uh, the aftermath of that, uh, the um, the next mayor has got to uh, lift the spirits of the community and give some vision uh, that Baltimore can be better and uh, get people to focus in on some of the strengths and not just the weaknesses. So, for example, um, there's a proposal to completely re uh, redevelop Port Covington to bring the headquarters of Under Armour and... That is a project that could be truly transformative, uh, uh, could not only uh, be for Baltimore what the Apple is for Silicon uh, Valley, and it could open up a lot of job opportunities. So uh, the next mayor, I think, has to uh, get that project completed. Longtime Baltimore The Rise of Charm City listeners may recall discussion of a similar downtown redevelopment plan in our very first episode. In the 1980s, decade-long tax breaks were given to people who chose to open businesses at the brand-new Inner Harbor. But the people given the go-ahead from City Hall to build were disproportionately white. City neighborhoods outside of downtown were neglected and blight continued to spread. Some constituents worry that history will repeat itself with Port Covington. Others aren't at all focused on business. Their concern is safety and survival. Good evening, my name is Davon Deli. I'm from South Baltimore, Lakeland. 
issues that I'm concerned with is gun violence. Uh, we need to educate people about the value of life because we're senselessly killing each other. And I'm not concerned about black-on-black violence, white-on-white violence. I'm concerned about violence purring in the world. By now, you may be wondering what's being done to shore up voter turnout. Who's on the front lines with voter registration clipboards? Who's trying unconventional solutions? My name is Nikedra Robinson. Folks call me Nike, and I am the founder and CEO of an amazing organization called Black Girls Vote. Black Girls Vote had a table next to ours in the lobby of Morgan State's mayoral debate. It was jumping. A bevy of volunteers sold lovely t-shirts, energy was high, and spirited conversations about civics were held. That's par for the Black Girls Vote course. Just last week we were at Downtown Locker Room because they released the new female Air Jordans. And those girls want the Jordans, right? You know, we're in the malls. We will shop and we'll make sure we're cute. We're in the hair salons and we have to have the dialogue. Sometimes I think the seniors or the elders, there's a disconnect because they want to talk at them versus to them. So we have to engage them. Let them know you're beautiful, you're powerful, you're important. It's been great just to see the conversation shift. You know, we want Black Girls Vote to be about all individuals. We want the first ladies there, but we also want the strippers there from the polls to the polls. Local listeners, you can register to vote in the Baltimore City mayoral primary by visiting voterservices.elections.maryland.gov. The Maryland primary will be held on April 26, 2016. This program is produced by Stacia Brown and brought to you by WEAA 88.9 FM as part of Finding America, a national initiative produced by AIR with financial support from the Wincote Foundation, the MacArthur Foundation, the Ford Foundation, Artworks, and the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Baltimore, the Rise of Charm City's field production team includes Ali Post, Mavish Raza, and Marsha Jews. Theme music by Mark Gunnery for the Center for Emerging Media. To subscribe to Baltimore, the Rise of Charm City as a podcast, visit us at iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. Follow us at Rise of Charm City on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And join us for our next episode, which will travel to Baltimore's historic Pennsylvania station. 